All right, so we're going to get started. We're going to do our review of where we already been. First John chapter 1, what were some highlights that you remember? Jesus is the word of life. That's what's described, right? And since, you just said it right, since the beginning at creation, he brought the way of what for us? Fellowship with God, which is eternal life, okay? Um, and then he went to make sure it was clearly defined that he was an eyewitness to the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he added that believers do have sin, but they are to avoid sin. So that was all packed in the very first chapter. Then in the second chapter, what highlights do you remember? Propitiation. And we spent a lot of time unpacking propitiation. Then he moved to a person cannot love the things of the world and God at the same time. They, ha- they are mutually exclusive ideas, mutually exclusive things ca- that can exist. They cannot exist together. What else? He was dealing with the Gnostics and what they were teaching, absolutely. And so he goes into the truth leading to eternal life was found in Christ. So he directs us back to that, which is the gospel. And then that leads us to do what? When we have Christ, we can then love others and practice righteousness, right? Um, Versus the lies that were being brought in, which denied that Christ was deity and about practicing sin. He says, be prepared to deal with the false teaching and the false teachers in the church. So he introduces himself, he introduces the gospel, he introduces what we're supposed to live, and then he goes, and now we're gonna deal with the false teaching that is coming into the church. And he hits it head on. So what were the basic tenets of Gnosticism? Knowledge superior to what? To character, right, or virtue? What was the second one? Right. There is people that have special knowledge and therefore they get to interpret. And we say, mm, no, we all have the same spirit in the same body. What was the third one? Right, God was, could not possibly be the creator and it was because he couldn't create sin and so they had done their little philosophy class and come to that conclusion. They had to have a different answer. Fourth, right, deity cannot exist in flesh. They were just flat out denying the resurrection, which is why you go back and you realize John started out with eyewitness to that very event. From the very beginning, from the first words of this book, he is dealing with this false teaching in the church. And if deity can't uh, indwell flesh or exist within flesh, then conclusionary, there's no resurrection of Jesus, which would then mean there's no resurrection for us. So are there other tenets that had come along, other ways in which Gnosticism developed over the years? Yes, absolutely. But these are the core foundational tenets that you will always find. And they're the ones we can see John contending with in this book. So that's why we kind of isolate down to that because we're not here to study Gnosticism in full. We're here to study the word and how it combats the false teaching. So then we did the first part. We made it through verse 10 last week in chapter three. What are the highlights you remember from those 10 verses? We're children of God. Because of that, we will be like him, which meant what? Heirs, but specifically like him in what way? That John was dealing with, with the false teaching. Exactly. He was resurrected, we're going to be resurrected. So as children, as heirs, we will be resurrected. When are we resurrected? When he comes back for us is how it was worded in um, that chapter three of 1 John. And we know that to be what we call the resurrection. It's also referred to within the church as the rapture. So at that time is when we get our resurrected bodies. And that's how we become purified. He talks about there is a part of the believer even now is purified. And we spent a great deal of time on that because that's the important foundation we must get before we move on. Where are you purified now, if you are a believer. In your spirit, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. You don't get any purer. He doesn't leak out. 
He doesn't need to be reminded about who he is inside of you. He's perfectly aware of who he is inside of you, right? Um, And when do you get that wonderful Holy Spirit? When you believe, when you become a believer. And the word that was used that we looked into was born again. So we spent some time when Jesus talked about what born again was, we talked about what born again is. You get that new spirit. So this if you are born again, allows a believer to practice what? Righteousness demonstrated in love for the lovable. (laughs) Love for the brethren. That's what we're called to do. Love of the brethren. So, and then finally he ends with, Jesus came to destroy what? The works of the devil. That was just the first 10 verses of chapter three. So now we're gonna finish chapter three and there's a whole lot there. I'm so glad that we split this in two because you can see we could not possibly have done justice to skip over what we would have needed to skip over if we had tried to pack it all into one time. So now we go to 1 John chapter three and we'll do verses 11 through 15. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wow, John's getting serious about something. Doesn't hold the punches on this one. So back in verse 11, John establishes that this was not a new measurement of relationship. How? What does he say? This is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Then he wants to give an example of that so we'll know what beginning he's talking about and the example that he's going to give us. So in verse 12, what is the example that is given? Wow, Cain, not as Cain. So he's going to give us the example from what it is not. So when you're making a point, you can make a point from what something is, or you can make the point from what something is not. He's going to give it from the perspective of what it is not. And he said, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for this reason, and and for what reason did he slay him? So John is going to give us the example of Cain all the way back from what book? right at the beginning in Genesis, and this underscores the point that this has been a true message from the beginning. So he's referring to the scriptures as the thing he's going back to at the beginning of. So we don't have to be confused about what he means from the beginning. In in those verses that John gives us, he says, Cain was of who? He was of the evil one. And what did he do? slew his brother. Again, we don't run around talking about people being slew, right? (laughs) He killed him. And why did he slay him? His deeds were evil. So Cain's deeds are described as evil. Notice, even before he murders his brother, wouldn't many people think, well, what Cain did in the murder is what made him evil? Mm-mm. He was described as evil before the murder. Think about that. So the contrast is also given of the brother's actions as being righteous. Not only were Cain's deeds evil, but he resented that his brother's deeds were righteous. So let's look at that in Genesis chapter four, and we'll do verses three through eight. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstling of his, firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain, 
and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance, countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. We could spend the whole 45 minutes to an hour right there, but we're not. We're gonna do a high level look at what happened in the story as it relates to what we're studying in 1 John. If you wanna do more study there, I definitely would recommend you go to the verse by verse site and you listen to the teaching and, or read through the notes that are out there that Stephen did when he taught through that section of Genesis because it's really good. So in verse three that we just read, what did Cain do? So he brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. What did Abel do? He brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. How was Abel's offering received? So the Lord had regard, notice first, he had regard for Abel and his offerings. It was about the relationship with Abel and then the offering. It wasn't because of the offering that Abel brought that then God could have regard. He already had regard for the man. In verse five, how was Cain's offering received? Again, what does he start with? For Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And then how did Cain respond to that? Very angry and his countenance fell. And in verse six, what question does God pose to Cain? Why, why are you angry? You know, why has your countenance fallen? Does God expect an answer from Cain when he asks him the question? Does he wait around for an answer from him? Nope, he just goes on to the next thing. And in verse seven, he says, what opportunity does God give Cain to do as God required? If you do well. What's interesting is in the literal translation, if you just went back and did the Hebrew, what it says, this is all that the verse contains. Do well, be raised up. Everything else you see around there is translators adding to try to make sense out of what they see in the scriptures. So that's why it can be important to go back to what was in just the Hebrew. What did translators feel like they needed to come along and kind of fill in? So when you go back to this purest and simplest form, that's what you find. Do well, be raised up. So here's gonna be the brief overview. Like I said, we could spend a lot more time there. We're not gonna do that here. But the Lord had regard for Abel and therefore he had regard for the offering he brought to God. God already had regard for Abel, not because of the offering, but before the offering. Abel had faith in God and out of this faith, Abel was able to act righteously before God. And this was demonstrated in the offering he made to God. Heart issue, ladies, it was a heart issue. God did not have regard for Cain and therefore did not have regard for his offering. In regard, meaning he knew there was no relationship between him and this person. The person was not there to honor God. And there's all kinds of things that people will take you off to. Well, he gave fruit versus, you know, that no, it was a heart issue. It was always about the heart issue. He was not in alignment. He did not believe in the words that God had spoken, which obviously there'd been words spoken about what a sacrifice should look like. One of the men did it and the other one didn't, okay? So that takes us back to 1 John chapter 3 in verse 12, where we are informed, it informs us that Cain was of who? He was of the evil one. So Cain does not have faith in God and this is demonstrated in an offering that could never please God because Cain is not a believer. That, right, there's two kinds of people in the world and he wasn't a believer and we talked about that last week when we said it doesn't matter what works somebody does. If you're not a believer, you're not doing them in God's will. They're not seen as righteous. 
It doesn't matter how the world would see them. It's what God sees. And an unrighteous person, an unbelieving person without the Holy Spirit can't possibly do anything that God can see as righteous. And we find it all the way back in the beginning story in Genesis. So Cain speaks with Abel. So he knows Abel's offering was accepted. If you go back and you read that, he had a little conversation. And then what was Cain's response after his conversation with his brother? He slew his brother. So Cain's response was to kill Abel. What was the reason given for why Cain killed Abel? His deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We find that even in the walk that we have. The unrighteous are often convicted by the acts of the righteous and the unrighteous respond by persecuting the righteous. John specifically uses this event from Genesis to give an explanation of why the believers in John's day are experiencing persecution. You do right, you're gonna be persecuted just like it has been from the beginning and he gives the example of Cain and Abel. He doesn't want them to be confused because can it be confusing if you're a believer and all of this persecution happens or when you're a believer and things happen in your life that just seem to be difficult? That makes us question. He's like, no, this has been happening from the beginning. Righteous will be persecuted. Do not let that change your view of God. Same God, faithful God. Do not let your circumstances dictate who God is in your eyes. So in 1 John 3.13, John cautions the believers how, right? Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And by world, we mean what? The unbelievers, don't let that surprise you. As a matter of fact, you need to be braced for it and you need to expect it because that's what's gonna happen. So John warns the believer that when their deeds are righteous, the unbelievers of the world will hate them. This was true from the beginning of creation and has continued to be the experience of believers throughout the ages. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Right? Believers will usually have some testimony of where this has happened in their life. We need to be prepared for the reaction from the world so that it doesn't take us by shock, doesn't surprise us, and it doesn't make us question who God is and who we are in who we are in God. And that's where we're gonna go later. He's gonna be talking about abiding, and that's why. I'll be abiding in you even when all this stuff is going on around you. Verse 14, what is true for believers? We have passed out of death into life. So what part of death has the believer experienced in this transition to life? You have the spiritual life. You have the perfect spiritual life in that you have the Holy Spirit in you. So believers have the new spirit and that spirit is going to live eternally. You're not gonna get another spirit at resurrection. You already have the perfect spirit. This is the spirit you will go into eternity with. The thing you're waiting on, a glorified body. That's what we're waiting on. But you have the glorified spirit already. You got your down payment. And we talked about that last week. How is this new life demonstrated? Because we love the brethren. What else can be true? He who does not love abides in death. You think John's really trying to drive a point home here? The person unable to love the brethren still abides in the dead spirit. The one who has, he was born with. And we talked about that last week, right? There's the natural spirit, the dead spirit. You don't get the new spirit until you're born again. And that's the Holy Spirit. And what standard is this author establishing at the end of that verse? Hating Another believer demonstrates that one may be an unbeliever. And where did we say that that discernment should begin? Is it me doing this to you? 
And judging you, it's me doing this to me. And if I find myself with the true hate, I need to be going back and figuring out whether or not I really have the Holy Spirit inside me. That's the discernment issue. So John spends time on his description of Cain and Abel to highlight what's going on in their current situation. So they were dealing with some pretty significant persecution. And John's saying, look, guys, this has been going on from the very beginning. Now, it's not new. You should expect it. We should have expected it. It's been in the scriptures forever. And guess what? It's going to continue. So let's brace ourselves for it. Okay, we're over 2,000 years later. Does that message change for us in any way? Brace yourself, ladies. I know it's going to come as a surprise. You will be persecuted by those who do not know the Lord. It's just what they do in their nature. It's not supposed to be surprising, but we still get surprised. And where do we get surprised by it the most? When it happens where? In the church. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but there's a lot of people that suffer from a lot of history in which they have had bad situations within the church. We need to walk a different walk. We need to embrace what God calls us to do and how we're supposed to respond to other believers. Verse 15, John emphasizes the significance of this hate. How? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's some pretty strong language, don't you think? Do you think he's exaggerating just for the point of having a great lesson here for us or to make his book sound better? I think he really meant it. How does hate equal murder? If we say the word hate, you know, like I, I don't know, I hate carrots or something, right? That this totally takes away the significance of the word. When I use it in description of how I feel about another person, I want that person dead. That's, you know, it's not that I just dislike them. True hatred is you wish that person dead. That's the level of hate that John is talking about. So just because someone has not actually committed the action does not mean that they haven't done so in their heart. And from God's perspective, guess what? There's no difference. And where do you think we're going to turn to in scriptures where Jesus talks about that? Well, let's see. When Jesus talks, we find a lot of your red letters are in the Gospels. So we're going to look to the Gospels. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just do two verses, 27 and 28. So Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28, we read this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said, if a man lusts after a woman, he has committed the act of adultery in his heart. So this is also true when a believer hates another believer, he wishes him dead, and in his heart he has already committed murder. That seems strong to you, right? We don't really think in those terms. John is dealing with that issue. So apparently what was going on in the early church was at the level of people claiming to be believers and so hating other believers, they wished them dead. And they probably had talked about it out loud. That's kind of scary. But that must have been what was going on or John would not have dealt with it at such a significant level. So in 1 John chapter 3.15, what is true about a believer who hates his brother? You know one that you know that no one that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So one who thinks about the level of hating a brother to the level of wanting to commit the murder, John says, that's somebody that doesn't have the spirit because those two things are mutually exclusive. That's the conclusion that John is gonna come to. So hate in a heart happens because they don't know Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit abiding in them. And therefore, the conclusion is they don't have eternal life. Because remember, that's the gift that you get 
through Christ in the Holy Spirit, you have eternal life. So he's doing it backwards. If they hate, they don't know Christ, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they don't have eternal life. Does this verse mean that someone who has committed murder can't be forgiven and receive eternal life? No, and why do we know that? Right. Is there any sin outside the reach of God's forgiveness? No. There's no hierarchy of sin. All sin is a violation of God's holiness. That's why we're all convicted of it. I've had some driving moments where if I would have had my way, I probably would have knocked that car off the road, right? So I've had some hate in my heart, but this different from what he's talking about, right? You have to have the Holy Spirit. It comes through the profession of faith in Jesus Christ and it gives you eternal life. And you will not hate your brother if you have the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Will you dislike some of your brethren? You will not hate them. You will not wish them dead. That's a scary thought. I don't know about you all. I know where my conviction happens. And I can let myself go in some real negative ways. I've had some conversations with myself in the mirror several mornings. That conversation I was going to have with somebody else. And then God's like, mm, you need to go get another cup of coffee because I need to deal with you. And he does. All right, so the description is of someone at the time of hating, demonstrating that there is no love, so there is no relationship with God at that moment. Not that they can't be forgiven and come to know the Lord later. So we don't wanna make that judgment on somebody that they could never come because that's not what we believe about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and forgiveness. So now we're gonna go back to 1 John chapter three and we'll read verses 16 through 22. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, all that made perfect sense, right? We don't really need to spend a lot of time there. We need to spend some time there unpacking it because that could be very confusing. Verse 16, how does a believer respond to his brother? We know love by this. We can define love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Who is John referring to when he said he laid down his life for us? Jesus. Right? If you're not really sure, that's the safe Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus. And if not Jesus, you can kind of go with God. And then if you're really not sure, you can say, Holy Spirit, you are usually covered. Right? This one is Jesus. We have confirmation of that in Romans chapter 5. We're going to do verses 6 through 9. So Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And what did we say? The wrath of God being poured out on Jesus was, what was the big Christianese word that we talked about? Propitiation. This is a description of propitiation again. So Christ died for the ungodly, 
And he describes that later by saying, while we were sinners, Christ died. Before we were ever born and committed any of the sins that we were going to commit, God already knew them and Christ died for us before we came into existence for our sin. Love is defined for us in that Christ loved us enough to die for us even though we were sinners. The contrast is established that Cain, listen to this, Cain took a righteous life in hate while Jesus sacrificed his righteous life for sinners in love. Quite the contrast. That's the difference. Back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, what are believers to do then? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We should love the brethren to the same level, be willing to die for fellow believers. For these believers in that day, John writing to, was physical death a possibility for one believer to do for another believer? Absolutely. Absolutely. What about us? I mean, I don't know where the world's going, but right now I can love on and not experience the threat of death. I don't know where that will go in the future, but that's where we are right now. I, just want to, I didn't write this in the notes, but don't you find it interesting? You know, Stephen used to joke that, you know, if you talk to a man, yeah, I take a bullet for my wife. Yeah, big manly thing that he would do. Yeah, but you won't pick up your underwear. Yeah. Right? The simple stuff you won't make a sacrifice of, but you'll take a bullet for. Right? That applies to us, right? Within the walk that we have with other believers. Yeah, well, if a guy walked in the back door with a rifle, I know I'd jump up and do whatever. Yeah, but do you do this for your fellow believers? No. Work here, work on what he gives you. You be willing to make sacrifices. What are you willing to do for fellow believers to demonstrate the love that God's put inside you and poured into you? You have the Holy Spirit, so I know you've got it in you. I know you can tap into that source, and so can I, and I need to a lot more often. And this is what's the encouraging part. There is some encouraging part going on in this letter. I know it sounds like a real downer, but on the other side of this is a demonstration of love beyond what we can even put words to often. In verse 17, outside of the ultimate sacrifice of death, how else can this love of the brethren be demonstrated? He gets down and dirty. He gets to the practical. He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and chooses and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? All right, so let's break it down. What are the world's goods? Material things, physical things, right? Clothes, shelter, food, you know, the basics of life. What can happen to a believer having the world's goods? He can see what? He sees that his brother is in need. Now notice it's very specific to the brother. He doesn't see the world in need. He sees his brother in need. What can a believer do who has the world's good and sees his brother in need? Closes his heart against him. What does it mean one sees his brother in need and closes his heart? He doesn't respond. To see a need would mean, first of all, that it's evident that, that they see it. One believer sees it in another. Do I know all the needs of every single believer that I run across? No. But there are some that I know their needs and there are some you all know their needs, right? Because that's what the Spirit can reveal in us. A natural response in one's heart is to help those in need. Think about that. Do unbelievers do this as well? Right? They can do that. They can reach out and see people that are in need. So when the response of someone is to close their heart or have no desire to help someone with an obvious need, John makes the conclusion and says, how does the love of God abide in him? That's the discernment. And again, what is his focus? Me looking at me. Not me looking at you. 
Let's never lose that focus. And that's where a lot of these scriptures have gone in the past and doctrines have been created and people are judging others and saying, I need to tell you, you're not this and you're not that. Let's start right here. If I can work on cleaning up my own house, I don't have time to come looking at yours. And that's literal as well as spiritual. (laughs) I just need to worry about my house. (laughs) Again, John is putting actions to the test and he is declaring those who declare themselves to be children of God and yet do not help believers in need should reevaluate their hearts. What sacrifices are you willing to make for other believers? There are others who need you. They might need to hear from you. They might need something from you. You know, you're not expected to meet everybody's needs, but when God puts somebody into your circle of influence, they're there for a reason. And what are you asked to do to sacrifice for them? And checking out and saying, I just don't really have time for that now. (laughs) Sorry, I got my own stuff. I'm kind of focused on. Yeah, there's boundaries that you establish because you can't give to everybody everything all the time or you'll get burned out and you won't have enough to give anybody. So that's not what we're talking about. But with discernment, you'll know when God's put somebody into your life that has a need that you're supposed to help. Or maybe you're just supposed to make a connection to them, to somebody else who can help meet that need. Ladies, that's discipleship within the church. That's us being there for one another. This is what it looks like. So John presents this as a way to distinguish between those who were of faith and in particular in his day, those who were the false teachers among them. Remember, his focus is on warning this church about false teachers that have seeped in. So these false teachers must have been saying some things that made it clearly evident they knew of needs and weren't responding. And John's like, that should be your first clue. And they're saying things that are murderous in their intent against other believers. And I can pretty much guarantee you that John, as well as the other apostles, were the target. And that's what John's contending with. In verse 18, what does John now say? Little children, let us not love with word and with tongue, but indeed in truth. So again, who is John addressing? The little children, and that means we're talking about the believers. And what are the believers to not simply do? Not love with word or with tongue. Is John in any way suggesting that believers should not say loving things to one another? No. He's saying don't let it stop there. We know that this is not true because John gives his conclusion by saying how believers are to respond in love. And how was that? In deed and truth. So John is emphasizing what? Actions over words alone. And as I've said in the past, I shared with this, this with you before, I have said to people, I cannot hear you because your actions are speaking louder than your words. Of course, I wasn't saying it in a loving way, which I also shared, but it was still true. Don't be that person. Let your actions speak louder than your words. So this again is dealing with what false teaching of the Gnostics? Head knowledge was more important than virtue and character, the things that they did. As they would say, well, I didn't have time, I didn't do that, but I know God. I can quote to you Deuteronomy, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not gonna bend over and help you pick up something or give a meal, all right? I'm I'm unavailable for that. And John's like, "Mm, no, that's not how it should work. So see how he is contending with the tenets, but you have to know what the tenets are to see when he's dealing with them. In verse 19, when a believer responds with deed and truth, what is evident? We will know by this, we are in the truth. Where's John's focus again? We, not them and they. We will know where we are. So what does it mean when he says, we will know by this? We will possess a way to have knowledge of something or a confirmation of something. And what will we have knowledge of? According to that verse, that we are of the truth. 
What does that mean? Well, here's an example of where you, it can be helpful to look at other translations. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, in the NIV, this is how that verse is rendered. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. Head, right? He's talking about the knowledge of the truth, which was contrary to the knowledge that the Gnostics would put forward. You know the truth. He's reaffirming for them, you know what truth is. You have the truth. And the NASB we read in 1 John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit and you all know. So you see how those two just sound different? But the bottom line is, and you know what? You know truth. How is it that you can know truth? Because you have the Holy Spirit. The translators of the NIV wanted to give the object of what we would know because we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit so the, or the Holy One. So the Holy One is the Holy Spirit. John gives references throughout the Gospel of John on this principle. And we're going to look at a couple of them so that you don't think I'm making some kind of a leap. So we're going to look at the same author who wrote something else in the Gospel. So in the book, Gospel of John... We're going to look at chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 16 through 21. John 14, starting in verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live in you. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. John, next chapter, so chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, we read, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Next chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Two chapters from there, chapter 18, verse 37. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so talking to Christ, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what did we learn about the Holy Spirit from those verses? He abides in us. He testifies about Jesus. He guides us in all truth. He allows us to hear the voice of God. Those are all testimonies from that gospel about what the Holy Spirit is and what he does for us. 1 John chapter 3. So we're going to go out of the book of John. We're going to go back to the book of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 19. When John says that we are of the truth, he is saying we can only do these things if we have the spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit living in us. By this, we will know we are of God. This is something we know about ourselves. This is where the knowing is to be concerned. 
first with us knowing us. Why can we still know we are of God, according to that verse, 19? We will, we, and we assure our heart before him. How does that happen? What's in us that can reassure our heart before God? What do you have in here that can assure you of your relationship with God? Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit will assure your heart before God. It's where you have your confidence. When you're feeling weak in your flesh, the Spirit can be the one that guides you and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a child of God. I got better things. I'm holy. You have me inside. I'm going to guide you. That's the assurance. In verse 20, when do we need this assurance the most? Wow, in whatever our heart condemns us. So what would cause this feeling of condemnation according to these verses? And you go back to verse 18. What did the verse right before it say that would allow us to think that maybe he's talking about a specific condemnation? That we speak only words of support without actually doing anything about the needs that we see. I don't think we need to take it out of context. He said, this is what, I, what you should do. Don't do it in words alone, but do it in deeds. Now he's talking about your heart condemning you. What would he be talking about? The very subject that he was just revealing in verse 18. That's what he's drawing the conclusion of. What is greater than our feelings of condemnation? He says, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. So God is greater than our heart. He is bigger than my feelings. He's bigger than my emotions. And he will lead me. God actually knows all things. He's not waiting to see how I feel about anything. Newsflash. Your feelings should not be where you turn to get confirmation of anything. They can be very deceptive. They are part of the flesh. They are part of the sin nature, and they will lead you astray. The word of God is the truth. That's where you're turning when you're confused and your emotions or your feelings are getting a hold of you. I know it may sound strange, but you know, ladies, we struggle with that probably a little more than the men do. But you have the same Holy Spirit, so you have the same power bringing you back to where you should be, where you should be confirmed in your heart about truth. So this high standard of demonstrating love for the brethren is how God convicts the believers of our own imperfections. I know he's done that throughout my entire life, and I know he's going to continue to do that. That's how he shapes and molds me and allows me to be in situations with real people in real life situations. That's how he does it. And it doesn't always have to be about whether you have a nice sweater for the fall. What do you, do you need somebody to talk you through something? Do you need somebody to walk along as you're making decisions about how to be a good wife or a good mother? What are the needs of the believers around us? Real needs. That's where we're supposed to respond. Because God is greater than our heart, fill in emotions or feelings, and he knows all things, he does not leave us in this condemnation. We'll have our own condemnation, right? We heap things on ourselves when we're not doing all the right things. My favorite Bible verse, in case you all were wondering, we're getting ready to go there. Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. This is for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Because God knows more, he overcomes the condemnation that you can have. There is none of that. All that stuff that's behind you, leave it there. 
You're the engine going forward and you have disconnected all those cabooses and engines and whatever else was dragging you behind. Look forward to where he has for you in the future. No condemnation. One rail car after the other, leave them behind. Leave them behind. This is what Peter experienced back in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 17. John 21, verse 17. This is Jesus. Jesus said to him for the third time. So he's talking to Peter or also known as Simon, son of John. Do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And there's a bigger teaching there because Peter was the one that denied three times. God gives him an opportunity to say, I love you three times. So it's a whole training opportunity that Jesus was taking the time to go through. And at the end of it, John said, I don't know why you're asking me the third time because you know my heart. You know every time I answered you that I love you. And when he finally said it the third time, then Christ said, then you can go tend my sheep now. Because you love me, that's what I'm gonna ask you to do. And how do you tend the sheep? Take care of their needs, Oh my gosh, circular argument. We're right back in 1 John. That's what we're called to do. Peter knew that Jesus knew Peter loved him because he says, you know all things. So Peter knew Jesus did not ask the question because he did already know all things. Jesus didn't need to be informed. Peter did. 1 John, verse 21. What allows confidence without question? He said, beloved If our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. So when we know that we have responded to others' needs, we then do not feel guilty or condemned because we've approached God with that confidence. We're stepping out and doing what we've been called to do. Have you had those moments in your life? As much as I brought up the other one earlier about the condemnation, do you have this in your life? Are there times when you know you've been there or been able to help provide something for somebody else? Does it not fill you up? Do for others and you'll be filled up. That's how it does work. Does it make sense? (laughs) Not at all. If I pour something out, shouldn't I feel more empty? How is it spiritually when I pour something out, sometimes I feel more full? Because it's supernatural and it doesn't make sense. But God tells us it's the truth. So pour it out, baby. Just keep pouring it out. You will never empty yourself of the spirit. You can never outdo God, ever. Verse 22, what can believers do with this confidence before God? And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Hmm, think that verse has been taken out of context quite a bit by the modern church? Yeah. What allows our request to be granted? Because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We are doing God's will when we are living by his commandments and doing the things that are pleasing in his sight. Are we talking about the law, ladies? Are we talking about the commandments of the Old Testament? Remember, we what were the commandments according to Christ? Love God with heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did he have to teach you how to love yourself so that then you'd have enough ability to be able to love your neighbor? I think he was assuming you love yourself just fine. And that flies in the face of some of the teaching going on in the church now as well. You need to be built up first before you can give to others. That's not what's being taught here and that's not what the gospel says. He says, you got the spirit, you got enough. And by the way, you do kind of love yourself enough. If you could, whatever your love is, let's say your love is only here and you really wish it was here and this guy has love here and that one has love here. He says, for this one that only has love here, if you could just love others as much as you have love of yourself, you'll be just fine. Let that resonate in your heart. It's never about us. The focus is never on us. What are we doing with what he's given us to glorify him in others? Pour it out. 
So when we are doing God's will, then we are living by his commandments. And John is gonna confirm that later for us when we get to John, 1 John chapter five. So this is just a sneak preview of one of the verses. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Can I go before the father and just ask for anything, expect to get it? I mean, I've tried a few times. I can promise you it didn't work. I need to be asking for something to be done in his will. And it's not just a little thing you tag on at the end. Jesus, what is your will? If I'm praying for his will, guess what's gonna happen? It's gonna be answered because it's his will. So am I changing God? Who's being changed? Me. When you pray for his will to be done, it's gonna be done because his will is always gonna be done. It's kind of circular logic again, right? Pray for his will to be done. Then when it's done, you go, yay, me and God helped help that happen. That's what he, we're little children. That's how he's encouraging us. He says, you finally asked for the right thing. You asked for your vegetables before dessert and I gave it to you. <laughs> Aren't you thrilled when your kids can do that? You're like, oh, they're getting it. They're getting the right thing. That's what he does with us. She finally got it. She asked for the right thing. So I was able to just put it right on out there and encourage her or him. What a loving father to be able to deal with us at our simple level and speaking for myself. Let's finish 1 John. We're gonna read verses 23 and 24. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Verse 23, John defines God's commandments how? So he says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded. So John narrows it down for us specifically what he's talking about so that nobody else could come along and say, well, you just left it open-ended for commandments and I filled it in. He goes, I don't want you to fill it in. So I filled it in for you. I let it be very clear what commandments I was talking about in my writing. The first was to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe on his name? What do we couch that in Christianese now? Gospel. It's the gospel. You've got to believe the gospel. Nothing else matters. If you can't get that right, right, nothing else matters. That's the first commandment. You need to believe on Jesus Christ. You got to get that part right or nothing else can happen after that. And then to one to love one another, how is that lived out within the church? So we, we evangelize and share the gospel. After you've shared the gospel, what's the next thing a Christian is supposed to do? Live it out how? In my home? With my poodle? With the other believers that he's put me in contact with. Disciple one another. Share the gospel, that's evangelism. And then walk it out, because it's gonna refine me and it's gonna refine you. And as we become stronger, the body becomes stronger. The body being what? The church. He says, this is all I'm asking you to do. I'm not giving you a whole list of check marks and all these kind of things you need to run out and do. Just do these two simple things. Are these things simple? They can be very difficult things, especially when not everybody's on the same page and understands them. Share the gospel and walk in discipleship with other believers. Verse 24, what additional encouragement, which we need, does John give? The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And how is this assurance possible? We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So when we have the Holy Spirit, we know he abides in us because this is how he abides in us. Okay, let's define that word. What does abiding mean? Living in, 
Well, we just did a little word search on that and the scriptures, and here's places where that word has been in the um, Hebrew used or in the Greek used, and then here's how it's been translated. So you can kind of get a, a broader definition of what abiding means. So it means to stay or to be able or to remain. It's translated abide 18 times, abides with an S 27 times. Abiding, six. Await, one. Continue, three. Endures, one. Lasting, one. Living, one. Remain, one. Remained, E-D, one. No, six. Remaining, one. Remains, with the S, seven. Stand, one. Stay, ten. Stayed, E-D, 11. Staying, three. Waiting, one. Those are all the times that the original word was used, and these are the ways the translator chose Right, so what does it mean? Sticking with it. The Spirit's sticking with it right here, not going anywhere, remaining, abiding. It's on the Spirit. For right now, what have we learned in 1 John up to now that abiding means for us? So this will just be a review of where we've already been. Back in 1 John Chapter 2, verse 6, we read, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So if the Spirit abides in me, I'm being asked to walk the same way Jesus walked. So that's the first definition of abide. A few verses later in verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So if I have the Holy Spirit abiding in me, I will love my brother. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been sent from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So if the word of God is abiding inside me, that's attached to what? The spirit. So the Spirit's what brings the word alive inside of here. You don't do one without the other. I can't really abide in, I can't know and live the Spirit. I mean, the word, if the Spirit's not there bringing it to me, convicting me, making it alive. That's why I said, what do you need most of all if you're gonna do Bible study? You gotta have the Spirit. He's your interpreter. Think of it that way. And you can't figure it out without the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, as for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. So if you have the Spirit, then you can abide in the Son and the Father. They're not separate. It's a package deal. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So the anointing is him abiding in you and living in here, the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So with the abiding, I can have confidence in what's coming. Now in chapter three, I just got three verses. Verse six, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or know him. And where did we talk about that happening? In your spirit. Because he abides in you. See how they're linked together? Abiding means he's in you. If you got the spirit, then you won't have the sinful spirit. Verse nine, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Born of God being born again, born again, meaning you got the Holy Spirit. So we don't get confused. Lastly, verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And that's where we end. You have the best gift. You got the Holy Spirit. And you know another nice thing? He doesn't weigh an ounce. 
So when you get on that scale, you don't get to say, well, put on a little bit this week because I got the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? He doesn't weigh anything. He's not weighing you down physically or spiritually. He is your gift. And when he's abiding, look at all the promises that can be fulfilled. Look at the life of freedom and non-condemnation you can live in. And look how you can love the Father, be in his commandments, and love one another. What a beautiful picture. And when you first read the end of chapter three, did you think it had a beautiful picture to it? Or did you go, what the heck is John talking about? He seems to be talking those circular motions that he can do. You see why he had to? Because he's upfront dealing with a false teaching, with words that were being thrown out, with condemnation and persecution and all the rest of it. And he comes up and he goes, hey, little children, I got a secret for you. You got the Holy Spirit. And he's fighting in you. And you're going to know it because you're going to be able to do the commands of the Father and you're going to be able to love one another. Y'all get that right. And for those that you see that are up there teaching and doing these other things, you probably should distance yourself. He's being diplomatic in some ways. And in the other moment, he's not being diplomatic. He's calling these people liars of their father, the devil, right? But all along, he keeps coming back to the encouragement to the believer. And that's what we do for one another. Go out and find those people he's put in your life, knowing that the spirit abides in you. Look for those that have the needs that he's put you in contact with and love the brethren. And get ready for the persecution. Because when the persecution comes, you know you're on your right target. And that's our encouragement in the world that we presently live in. It's always been the truth, right? But when there was no persecution, we kind of got away from that. Well, it's coming. And you just hold on to that horse by both reins and you ride it out because you have the spirit. <laughs>